The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, Liverpool Man City, a Sunday clash as souped up as Van Gogh's sunflowers, which also had us glued to it and finished red all over. Are Liverpool, air quotes, back? We draw our conclusions from the weekend's action and look ahead to the midweek in store with a chat that features a beach ball, Kepper's comeback, some very rare VAR chat, Fulham Bournemouth and 3pm TV blackout news. It's all in this Totally Football Show. And hello, listener, from us here on the morning of Monday, the 17th of October. We have Tom Williams, Sasha Gurionov, and joining us today, Amitai Winehouse, a.k.a. The Athletic's news editor and Leeds fan. Amitai, uh, welcome on board. What will you be singing? What will I be singing? Uh... Yeah, it's your debut, you know, standing on a chair right now, listener. <laughs> um God, I've just gone and complete, but I've, I now know no songs. Uh, Your name I, is I, um, Winehouse, it occurs to me. So Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, could, I, could just, lot, I could just crack on with rehab, basically. Uh, right. I, I almost just want to start singing Marching On Together. It's all my head can bring forth at this moment in time. OK, we'll be talking a little bit about Leeds later on and a lot about the 35-minute, was it? 37-minute interruption to that game. Sasha, meantime, you've been off seeing the Liverpool resurrection. You'll be uh, telling us about that and trying to remember to breathe and, uh, and other details. Uh, Tom, you have been doing Match of the Day for Canal Foot on Paris. Yes, actually, I, I wasn't on Match of the Day duty. I was on... So the, the Sunday show is just called The Match, uh, and it's spelt with a, a T, but it's still pronounced the same way because, of course, it's being sent, said by French people who can't pronounce their THs. So different spelling, same, same effect. Same outcome. I see. Oh, it's going to be interesting to hear what the French made of events at Anfield. Perhaps you can tell us more about that equivocation uh, from Kylian Mbappé as well later on. Turns <laughs> out he doesn't want to leave after all. Doesn't feel betrayed. Oh, he doesn't. Oh, yeah. No, really unfortunate understanding. When when his um, when his people were telling all the journalists they knew that he wanted to leave, the, the journalists who heard that were mistaken. So if everyone could kindly forget that they ever heard about that or read about that, Mr. Mbappé would appreciate it greatly. Nice one. All right. Well, plenty to come. Uh, let's start with a quick roundup of game week 11 or something. Uh, Liverpool beat Man City 1 0. City now four points behind Arsenal at the top of the table after the Gunners won 1 0 at Ellen Road. There were 2 0 wins for Spurs against Everton, Chelsea at Villa, and Brentford against Brighton. And draws for Leicester with Palace, Fulham with Bournemouth, Saints with West Ham, and Man United at home to Newcastle. Meanwhile, Wolves have moved out of the bottom three after beating bottom of the table Forest, Forest and Leicester, and now four points from safety. Midweek, we go again with a full fixture list apart from the top two, Arsenal and City, who'll be sitting this one out. Among the games, Liverpool will be hosting West Ham and Man United face Spurs. All right, let's begin at Anfield. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Now clearance practice for Salah. Gary Neville there with Martin Tyler as Liverpool take a 1-0 lead against Man City and keep it. In summary, Man City have no ceiling, but Mo Salah is ruthless. Mm. Sasha, you were there. Tom and Amitai, you want to say anything before Sasha rolls into action? 
I just thought it was really interesting that both Guardiola and Klopp were so obviously het up during the game. I think it was Adam Crafton made this point on Twitter, but even though Liverpool haven't started particularly well, it's like quite obvious that these are the best two teams in the Premier League. And, and it shows based... I mean, put it this way. Is Klopp that bothered? Is Guardiola that bothered? If they're not facing the hardest team they're going to face all season, I just thought it was really interesting that they both felt they had to have that in level of intensity, uh, and I suppose it was reflected on the pitch by that sort of reaction at the end. But but it is interesting that these two aren't the top team in the Premier League, but I feel like they are the best team still. All right, interesting shout, Amitai. Tom, what was the French take on this? Uh, yeah, I mean, we we really enjoyed it. Um, you know, it's it, it was a game that that confirmed everything uh, that that French football fans like to think about English football uh, in the intensity, in the quality, in the aggro. Um, I felt like you know we kind of got Liverpool back. You 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 felt like you'd got a bit of the Anfield raw back. Certainly looks like Mo Salah is back, which is great. And I think you know, as from a neutral perspective, for the title race for the season as a whole, um, you know, a, a Liverpool win, particularly in those slightly niggly circumstances, was was um, was perfect, really. Mm, all right, Sasha, there you go. You were there in the crowd, part of that roar, when in the second half, after a disallowed goal for City. There's a city free kick. Allison saves and then spots an Egyptian herring upfield and unleashes that killer pass. Yeah, I mean, we've seen that pass before. Uh, remember, that's how they finished off Man United uh, in the title-winning season. And it's always on. Um, also, Allison did it only a couple of minutes later when he passed to Jota. went straight to Jota's feet as well. So, you know, he has that accuracy. But I didn't even understand how Salah got away from Cancelo in that moment because it was kind of sort of flurry of turns and legs and suddenly he was away. And this time he wasn't going to miss because in the crowd we all thought he missed his first one-on-one. In fact, it was an absolutely brilliant Edison save. But I think what struck me about about the game just overall is the level of application for Liverpool. I know Amitai said earlier that, you know, maybe this is the two best teams in the Premier League. I certainly didn't think so the previous Sunday when I went to the Emirates where I thought Liverpool played well for about 20 minutes but Arsenal bossed the game and it felt to me like that was really the changing of the guard. That's why, while I didn't... I think no, I, I, a lot of Liverpool fans did approach Sunday with some trepidation uh, because we knew that against City, you had to go for 90 minutes and that's what Liverpool did. And I think the crowd were not amazed but very pleasantly surprised by this and got really got on board with this because I thought the first half, I'm not sure how it looked like on the telly, but perhaps for a neutral observer, it wasn't that interesting, but in the ground itself, you could see how much care each team was putting in what they were doing. I mean, Liverpool were trying as much as they could not to give up the ball to, to City, closing down space at the back. I mean, I haven't seen Liverpool want to defend like that this whole season, want to track back this whole season. Um, you know, the second half, uh, Liverpool defensively registered really well. Harvey Elliott, together with Milner, kind of looked after Foden, and then they counter-attacked at an appropriate time. And towards the end, actually, this is something that much of the day, too missed out for some reason. Darwin Nunez had three brilliant chances at the end, which he yeah. messed up, but he was there as a brilliant outlet. So overall, coming out of the ground, you think this is the most complete Liverpool performance since the spring. And I would like to say something as well, that it didn't just come after Arsenal. There was that game at Ibrox in midweek. And while that looked like 7-1, Liverpool really struggled in the first half in that game. And a raucous crowd, re- like I, I, was, I, was, I was actually quite astonished by, by Ibrox. And then the celebrations when Rangers went ahead and Liverpool looked rattled. But I think in this, at halftime, Klopp told effectively Harvey Elliott, and Carvalho to just look after the ball and suddenly Rangers look spent and Liverpool enjoyed their football and also a special mention to Joe Gomez because he was brilliant at Ibrox physical battles and he set up the second goal after which Liverpool won the draw and this particular game here 
he was back to the form he was in three years ago. He knew where Van Dijk would be. He knew how to cover Milner. And I think Joe Gomez really comes out of this game with a massive, massive credit. Magnificent. That final stretch, slightly nervous after Salah had taken the lead, but there were chances for Darwin Nunes to sew it up. And Iturralde says, have any of you guys ever witnessed a worse decision made in any walk of life than Darwin Nunes is in that 3v1? Uh, Ashwin Rahman, with possibly the tweet of the week, say what you like about Darwin, but he never makes the natural selection. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Yep. Very good. See what he's done there. There are a few things more infuriating in a football match than seeing a player ignore a, a very obvious pass, particularly when the game is is as in the balance as it was. I mean, obviously, you know, fortunately for Liverpool, they were leading at at, at that point and, and the failure to score didn't uh, didn't cost them in the end. But I, I can't think of any... There's, there's, a particular, there's a particular kind of anguish that that sort of situation provokes. And I can't think... I mean, even a goalkeeper error that leads to a goal or a bad miss, there's, some, there's, there's a sense of a moral failing when a player fails to play the obvious pass in that position. Um, and that's why I think if you're watching as a, as a neutral, that's what, that's what makes moments like that so enjoyable. Mm. I, I, also, I also don't think I've ever seen a player um, play the right pass when it's a three-on-one. I just, I just can't remember it. Like when, it's, when, it, when there is an obvious pass and it looks so obvious on TV, I just, yeah, I, I feel as though I've only ever seen them make the complete wrong choice. So, uh, Sasha, are Liverpool back then? It, Mo Salah certainly looks back. But apart from application, was there anything else that was different about what's happened to Liverpool in the last, what, seven well, days? I, th- I, th- I think the, the, hu- the huge difference, again, came, came at Rangers when Salah came on and scored a hat-trick from a central position. Mm. Again, I guess, to beat an opponent, but uh, the ease with which he did it. And I think that gave him a lot of confidence. That gave the team a lot of confidence as well. They played in Glasgow, they played with real joy in that second half. And I think they kind of carried over that, pos- that positivity um, into, into this match. Of course, there's the change of formation. Um, of course, there's also lots of injuries now as well, with which Liverpool coped reasonably well. Now Jota is out for an indeterminate period of time. But I think overall, there was there was a sense of like the kind of return to the professionalism of last season because I think I felt that this season, ever since getting rattled by Fulham in the first game, Liverpool haven't, like, that midfield hasn't really recovered. Uh, whereas yesterday, we saw that the gaps were closed down and they really, really played it very smartly. And of course, Another thing that's changed that uh, Klopp got sent off for the first time, and the thing that hasn't changed was, I, th- I did think there was a lot of fouling on Salah, um, and uh, you know the the incident of which Klopp completely lost his rack. He was effectively know, tossed in the air by by Bernardo before, like there was a slight kick, slight kick on him. I think, but I think that's also showed how rattled City were at that stage, particularly Bernardo. Bernardo seems to take these. Um, Games against Liverpool very personally. Um, there's a piece uh, in the Totally Yearbook, which is just out now, which I wrote about City uh, Liverpool, and you know what makes a great rivalry. And I think one ingredient that is possibly missing um, out of this rivalry between Liverpool and City is, is hatred. But I think you know Bernardo Silva maybe carries all that hatred just within himself uh, because every game is against Liverpool for him seems to be like you know a do or die situation. And he um, so like he was definitely needled. Um, as for the rest of the season. I think Liverpool need to limp to the World Cup and then reassess after that. The league is long gone. Uh, they need to make sure they get in the Champions League um, and focus on the Champions League this season themselves. And I think, but I think yesterday would go a long way towards rebuilding sort of belief in themselves and actually belief of the fans in the team that they can, they, they can still deliver this performance that perhaps they're not finished yet. Mm. Well, Liverpool haven't lost a game in the Premier League at Anfield in front of a crowd since April 2017, and they are back there Wednesday night against West Ham. West Ham, who had a 1-1 draw 
at Saints this weekend, a game which saw 35 shots in total, 25 of them for the Hammers, but just the two goals. Remarkable stuff. What about City then? What about City who thought they'd taken the lead? Bit of controversy over that goal being called back for Phil Foden. What about the suggestion that Pep pepped it up? Uh, various people saying that City broke from their kind of tactical template and uh, were more conservative in this game. Uh, you could say, but I, th- I think City, whenever they play Liverpool, they are quite wary. Having said that, I think last season they dominated both games in the league like comprehensively. Um, with this game, I mean, yeah, he went for three at the back, which left a little a little bit of space on the left for them because, you know, space behind Foden. But at the same time, Foden and Bernardo kind of pushed back at Liverpool flank. I know, like, Murphy on match of the day was quite critical of City's approach. I didn't think, I, I wouldn't have said so. I think defensively, I think it was fine, uh, more or less. And I think it was a very intensive game also in midfield. Um, it gave them a little bit of potential for overload in midfield as well. Also, I think they did stretch the Liverpool back, could stretch the Liverpool back line quite a bit. But I think overall, rather than formation itself, I think they were taking a lot of care of what they were, over their, what they were doing. They, weren't, they were waiting for the moment to unleash themselves. And to be fair, you know, um, Holland uh, did have three chances, which on another day he could have done better with, two headers. Mm. Um, I think yeah, he was used through once, um, and obviously the shot from the edge of the box. Um, but it was, I think, it was, a, it was a game of a lot of patience. Uh, there was a moment in the first half, I think Liverpool passed it around the back for about three minutes before that Van Dijk found the diagonal. And I think it was clear that the two opponents obviously massively respect each other and do not want to make mistakes. So I think maybe it's that sort of mentality that perhaps drove, uh, was a big driver towards how City played rather than, you know, whether they went three at the back or four at the back. Mm. All right. West Ham midweek. We'll see how that one goes. Ooh, Tom. Yeah, I mean, not to wade into a refereeing um, controversy because as we know, refereeing controversies are very boring. But I did sympathise with City a little bit uh, when it came to the Phil Foden goal that was ruled out because clearly there was a foul on Fabinho in the build-up. So it was rightly ruled out. But as Pep Guardiola pointed out uh, after the game, there were lots of fouls during the game that that, that were not penalised. And I think this is the consequence of the directive that was given to, to to Premier League referees to let the game flow a little bit more. And I think instinctively, as fans of English football, we understand that and we appreciate that. You don't want a game that is stopped by the referee's whistle every three or four minutes. It's much it's much more enjoyable and it's much more important for the Premier League as, as a spectacle, as a brand, for the game to be allowed to flow. In which case, why do you have VAR? Well, but this is the this is the difficulty. This is the difficulty. Mm. I, I'm not sure that you can have VAR and have a directive to let the game flow in a way that is is satisfactory to everyone because they're mm. as kind of approaches they're they're fundamentally incompatible. And it means that game after game after game you get situations where in one game a foul is punished and in the next game an almost identical foul is not punished. And it's because the referee and the VAR have decided that in that particular instance, they wanted to let the game flow, whereas another referee might have thought, well, this is too important. I cannot possibly overlook this. And it is it, it, it is a frustration. You know, I think we could all see that the Foden goal was rightly ruled out because of the foul by Haaland on Fabinho. But at the same time, having watched that match and seen all the fouls that weren't punished, you could understand City's frustrations that that, that was, you know, that was one that was that was pulled up on. Right, might have been a, a. I mean, I know refereeing discussions can be dull, but luckily we rescued that by bringing VAR into the equation. Nice one. Just yeah. to wrap this up, then, uh, Amitai, 
for you, yay or nay? I I I thought it was a foul anyway for for Holland on on, on Allison, but to kind of wrap this up without going too massively into in depth into something which is already done and dusted. But Amitai, what was your take? Well, I, I just think it very, very, very quickly. I think it is the difference between the moment-to-moment refereeing and the big incident refereeing. And the thing that people are going to talk about is what happens around goals. And therefore, you kind of have to have that higher bar for gold. It's, it's, it's why the handball rule is now what it is. It's difficult to like look past what is a foul in the build-up to a goal in the same way that you mm. might be able to let it skate by in the middle of the pitch when nothing's happening um so yeah i think it is i think i think it was a foul i i can see why city would feel hard done by but if you're reassessing it which var is there for yeah it's not a goal at the end of the day no sash do we need to ask you no uh no i was just going to mention the goalkeeper thing uh because the referees the referees came out yesterday and said that there was basically a second foul there anyway two fouls for the price of one nice exactly excellent well there you go liverpool Back at it. Uh, next up, let's talk about the league leaders and a tough weekend for staging football matches in Yorkshire. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Tough weekend for staging football matches in Yorkshire. Hull against Birmingham City was delayed 20 minutes after it turned out the goalposts were the wrong size and they had to soar a bit off. I'm pretty impressed that they managed to do that and reconstruct the goalposts in the space of 20 minutes. It would have taken me, I would say, probably six to eight weeks of just looking at the goalposts and thinking I must get around to making those the right size and then there'd have been the carpentry. But how long had they been the wrong size and had everyone else just not spotted this? Does anybody know? You know, there's been like a spate of this recently, which is really... Madness. Yeah, it's it's baffling me a little bit because I feel like there's been at least three incidents. There was one of the women's game recently and, yeah, I feel like there's been three of these. So have we just been playing with non-regulation nets for for years? I mean, possibly. Because is it part of the pre-match routine for the officials to go around and and check that I know they check the actual uh, integrity of the netting but do they check the dimensions with a, a tape on that maybe this is one of the new premier league directives they've maybe been told so. to let the, let the game flow and also ensure that we're not lacking a single inch of of goal space right and it was quite influential i mean this ended up a, a 2-0 win for 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 birmingham city troy deeney though with a uh, a penalty in the game that probably would have gone in had the crossbar not been lowered but no, no, why, why is anyone making goals that are the wrong size in the first place? Is there is there a demand for slightly slightly larger than average goals? I mean, that's the that was the baffling aspect of it from from my perspective. Did mm. feel and I I really enjoyed the scenes of like the kind of the extraneous bit of goal just being sawed off. Felt very uh, yeah, felt very Sunday League. Very nice. Uh, also delayed in Yorkshire was Leeds Arsenal for thirty seven minutes. A power cut. Have I got this right, Amitai? I know you had you were, you were across it. Power cut meant the match officials lost contact with VAR 
and goal line technology, and nobody wants for the game to go ahead without that, especially because VAR was to prove quite influential in this game in the second half. Yeah, so, so I mean, the, the best part of the afternoon, well, it wasn't the best part of the afternoon, but in a sense was watching Chris Kavanagh um, walking around the pitch and just sort of like holding the ball over the goal line and then turn around to various <laughs> players warming up again and going, yeah, it's not working. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was just really weird, bouncing the ball. It, you, you know that this happens pre-match at every Premier League game, but no one watches it, whereas in this case, it was all that was happening on the pitch at Ellen Road for about 30 minutes. So it was the most fascinating thing I'd ever seen. But this is, this is the thing, and it get, I'm sorry to bring up VAR again, but basically, the referee in each major incident in the game made the wrong decision, and if, it hadn't, if they hadn't have had contact with the match centre it would have been a very, very different game of football because Leeds wouldn't have been given the penalty that was for Saliba's handball. The incident involving Gabrielle at the end of the game would have been a red card and a penalty when it probably wasn't. I, th- I think my outlook was it was probably not a penalty but potentially a red card because there'd been a foul by Bamford in the build-up but Gabrielle did kick out. So it would have been a very, very strange, very different game of football. I feel as though like you don't see scenes like that very often but it just speaks for the fact that actually... Maybe refereeing in the Premier League requires this additional layer right now. Maybe it's the way they referee. Maybe they try not to make strong decisions. But that handball in particular was very obvious and he just didn't react to it at all. Yeah, no, it's an interesting point you make as well about their calls being influenced by the safety net of of a possible VAR appeal. Before uh, all that second half excitement, we had the madness from Rodrigo that led to Saka's goal. Extravagant switch of play. (laughs) Yeah. Without without wanting to over-egg it with Rodrigo, like this is a habit of his. He he used to do it a lot when he played in central midfield, and actually a lot of Leeds' goals last seasons that, that they conceded came from his cross-field passes that just never worked out. And yeah, that was that was a very strange decision. Mm. Did yeah. he get hooked at half-times precisely for doing that? Um, Marsh said after the game that he basically said... It was a strange pass for him to play because it's not something we want to do. So I'm not sure whether he specifically said he was hooked at halftime for that, but it kind of follows on. I find a, a recurrent a feature of watching Leeds of late is that I see Rodrigo on the ball and I momentarily think that it's Rafinha and forget that Rafinha isn't there anymore. And then Rodrigo does something and you're like, oh yeah, that's not Rafinha. And mm. Rodrigo slamming uh, an ill-advised crossfield pass uh, to uh, straight to an opposing player was was pretty high on the not very Rafinha scale. Mm. Leeds now winless in six Premier League matches, lying 15th, only one point above the drop. They're at Leicester on Thursday. The goal uh, taken wonderfully by Saka after that uh, crossfield assist from Rodrigo. He's now scored or assisted nine goals in his last ten for the Gunners. Coxie, Michael Cox, uh, describing the game as Arsenal's worst performance of the season. What do you think, Amitai? I I thought that, yeah, in the second half in particular, Arsenal were pretty poor. It was one of those, though, because I think one thing we're sort of learning about Leeds under Marsh is that they're quite good against better opposition. So, for example, the Chelsea game earlier in the season, they created loads, they scored three goals. Very similar to yesterday, where, like, Leeds probably actually deserved to win that game in, in places. But then you also get the sense that if Arsenal can go to a game like that, come through it, win 1-0, probably take their only very good chance of the game... 
it mm. might set them up for this sort of weird accidental title win that they're on course for as it stands. Um, like they, they look like a team that could do something in the Premier League because they're getting 1-0 wins in games they don't necessarily deserve to win. Well, they are now four points clear at the top. They are off to their best start to a league season ever. And what is the second best start by any team in Premier League history? Hands up who, like Amitai, genuinely thinks Arsenal might be accidental champions? Charlie, producer Charlie thinks so. Tom, you've got a little finger up, and producer I don't know Charlie, what that I'm means. Straight in the air. My, yeah, as we, I, I can't really decide how, how much I, I believe in it. But, I mean, I, you know, you suspect at some point City will just go on some ridiculous tear um, and Arsenal, Arsenal's young team will, you know, will, will, will have a bit of a crash and, and, and that will be that. But I think... You know, each time they've been confronted by an obstacle, they've generally found a way of getting over it. And the only, you know, the only time they've dropped points all season was in that defeat at Manchester United. And they actually came out of that with a lot of credit and people felt that they'd they'd played pretty well and, and they had played pretty well. And since then, mm-hmm. they won away at Brentford, they won at home to Spurs in the derby, they won at home to Liverpool. Um, and they're now picking up, uh, you know, that they're grinding out wins at places like Leeds against opponents who who cause them lots of problems. Um, it's unfortunate, actually, uh, that their game against City this yeah. week has been postponed because obviously that w- that was the game that fell victim to Arsenal's rearranged U- European game against PSV Eindhoven. It would have been fascinating to watch Arsenal and City go head to head at this stage of the season. The Rob's yeah. going to have to wait for that. But I think in the meantime, it enables Arsenal to to you know to to pursue this this positive dynamic that they're on um, and you know the, the longer they string the wins together the more that the more that belief will will grow Sasha why are they not going to win the title I think it's because of the contrasting performances that we saw I, it goes back to consistency so this is the same team that played against Liverpool the week before and were pretty imperious pressed the entire game knew exactly what they were doing very composed whereas in this game they got weirdly rattled I don't think weirdly I think what Leeds did very well, they kind of swarmed that midfield, um, particularly on the counter, which I think gave party and, you know, the central defence a lot of problems. And then also Bamford got in their faces, which again perhaps shows, you know, young players, you know, he, he rattled them personally because he got stuck in into Gabriel quite, you know, quite a bit. And that was a bit, a bit of a running battle. And I think that unsettled them somewhat. So I think perhaps, uh, I mean, you're looking at the team that is still in the process of being built. So I think, you know, I don't think they'll pick this season. I think it'd give it a couple more years. And I think maybe in a couple of years, there will be genuine competitors to, uh, you know, to, to City, but in the moment, I think it should be treated as a work in progress, and I think it should be treated as something that can be enjoyed because they would have great performances, and I don't think they will escape with points like um, like they did with Leeds every time. But mm. yeah, I mean, this is certainly, I mean, they're, they're nailed on for I think top three at least. Okay, no word yet on when Arsenal will be taking on Man City in that rearranged fixture. Sasha, you're saying sometime in the new year, a midweek uh, gap, then. Mm. All right. As you say, Tom, quite a shame that we're not getting to see see that clash this midweek. What we are getting, aside from Liverpool-West Ham, well, there's Brentford against Chelsea. Uh, probably the marquee fixture would be, what, Man United-Tottenham on the Wednesday? Seven points between them as Man United make a run for the top four. Man United this weekend, though, held to a 0-0 draw with Newcastle, while Spurs beat Everton 2-0. Here's a stat. Everton have had seven games against sides managed by Antonio Conte in the Premier League. They've never scored a goal in any of them. Hmm. I mean, not sure what it means, but there you go. Any takeaways from Spurs' 2-0 win over the Toffees? 
I'm starting to get a bit worried about um, the number of injuries ahead of the World Cup because, I, I mean, we've had no confirmation about what's happened with Richarlison, um, mm. but it looked, given that he left on crutches and in a brace, that it would probably be quite serious. We're starting to get to the point where we're losing like quite a lot of very good players from the World Cup. And, I mean, it's probably inevitable because holding it in the middle of a season when no one can drop the intensity and everyone's playing loads of games is, is very tough. But I, I just don't know what it's going to mean for the the spectacle in the Middle East. Like I just I think it's I think it's potentially a bit of a shame because there's him, Kante's been ruled out, Reese James. Um, it looks like Jota's going to be finding it difficult to make it there. I I, I don't know. I I don't know if we're seeing more or less or whatever. But it feels like we're going to be missing out on a lot of key players. Yeah, I mean, obviously the injury situation is um, is a concern, and we're still a month out from the start of the tournament. Uh, but happily, this whole World Cup is going to be such a such a feel-good, you know, loving for football fans everywhere that I'm sure it will be, you know, this will be quickly forgotten. Fingers crossed, Tom. Fingers crossed. Meantime, four Spurs against Everton. Harry Kane with a penalty. Uh, that's his 15th goal in 16 matches against Everton. It also represented him scoring in five games in a in a row in the Premier League, his best ever scoring round. The other goal from uh, Hoiberg. Uh, Spurs then will be taking it to Old Trafford on Wednesday to take on a Man United side fresh from a controversial 0-0 draw with Newcastle United. Among the things up for discussion, the penalty shouts, particularly, I would say, Rafael Varane or Callum Wilson. Ronaldo's goal... Was it right to be disallowed or not? And also the Newcastle kits, that kind of Geordie Arabia uh, outfit they went with. What did you feel? Amitai? Yeah, I was I was very surprised that that Varane um, tackle wasn't given as a penalty. I also it was, it was one of those moments where you sort of saw a little bit of like refereeing uh, folklore. The referee had his hand in the air the entire time uh, Ronaldo was taking the ball from Nick Pope, which I now understand means a free kick hasn't been taken. But it's one of those things you see and you sort of forget it means anything. So yeah, Ronaldo shouldn't have been given. But that Varane one in particular, I thought, looked like a, an obvious penalty to me. I thought there was something particularly unedifying about Ronaldo trying to seize on that opportunity to score. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, as a goal scorer, you're looking for opportunity to score all the time. And if you think that, you know, the opponent has, has let their guard down, then why not just jump in and punish them? But it, it did. I don't know. I just the thought that he and that he alone had spotted this this loophole in the game that he was going to exploit and could just in the context unedifying. of his current struggles... Mm. Unedifying. The fact that he has scored so few goals this season, that he got this rare opportunity to start, didn't make the most of it, that he later went off in a big half, it all kind of feeds into the same sort of sad Ronaldo narrative, doesn't it? Mm, it does a bit. Uh, Newcastle have only had three wins in ten, and they're sixth. Three wins, and they're sixth. Sasha. So I was going to say that one thing I was looking forward to between um, Spurs and United um, is um, Bissouma against Casemiro. Uh, which Ooh. I think, on the evidence of recent weeks, is could be could be quite quite tasty. I mean, I think um, Bissouma's introduction against Everton was one of the great accidental substitutions, which then completely changed the course of the game. Whereas I think Casemiro has become more and more prominent, I think, in everyone's sort of minds over, over the last few weeks. So I think it would be interesting to see what happens in, in that midfield battle. Um, as for Newcastle, I don't really know what to draw from this game because I mean, we grew up watching, you know, United Newcastle. That was. Uh, very sort of fun and boisterous. Uh, this really wasn't that. Um, so I, I must say, I was left completely uninspired by this particular game. Well, it's a big week for United after the Spurs game. They've got Chelsea, the team 
wedged between them and Spurs in the table. We'll have a think about what Chelsea got up to this weekend next. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Very much in shooting range. It's Mason Mount. And it's 2-0. Well, Chelsea have had to work for it, but it looks like they're going back to the capital with all three points. Chelsea, who lie fours, three points ahead of Man United, but four behind Spurs. But on a five-game winning streak with Graham Potter, with a game in hand, crikey. Uh, The latest victory for Chelsea came at Aston Villa on Sunday. A 2-0 win, Amitai. Is it Kepa that we're going to talk about here? Is it... Aston Villa's spirited second-half performance. It's Kepper, isn't it? Yeah, de- definitely. I, I, I always had a bit of a... Mendy was very obviously a good shot-stopper and had a very, very good run for Chelsea. Obviously won the Champions League with them. But I always felt as though there was something in the circumstance around him signing. You know, he was a £16 million goalkeeper that just felt as though he can't he can't be world-class. Otherwise, someone else would have been in for him. He would have cost a lot more money. You can't just sign someone like that last minute and they turn out to be the best goalkeeper of all time. And... As it went on, and and I think back to that game against Leeds, it became quite clear that there were like heavy flaws in his game. So his his distribution's not brilliant, and his like reactivity and his ability to sweep up isn't particularly good either. And it felt like he made like quite a lot of mistakes because of that. He could save ten shots, but actually sometimes he would cost Chelsea a goal because his reactions weren't brilliant in a in a sort of wider pitch sense. And I think it's particularly interesting Potter's gone with Kepa because the thing he can do to a degree is play that modern sweeper-keeper role, mop up a bit more, play the ball a bit, you know, tidier at times. And then you look at the saves he made on Sunday. That Mm. that triple save, admittedly, it's only a double save because one of them was offside, but that triple save was absolutely phenomenal. And the the one that I think won't be as obvious to people, but he saved this point-blank header from Danny Ings that was just remarkable goalkeeping. And they've kept clean sheet after clean sheet under Potter as well. So it suggests that not only is Kepa working in a goalkeeping sense traditionally, he's saved shots, he's also working in, in like line with the team. So you can understand why a manager who likes having the ball would play Kepa over Mendy. And it might just be that like that is the dynamic that Chelsea have going forward. Four clean sheets in a row, indeed, with, with Kepa between the sticks. At the Bridge Pod asked, did Kepa perform the greatest triple save in the history of Premier League football? Sasha, as a top keeper yourself, what's your take? Well, uh, first of all, I'd like to welcome Amitai to the Sasha Gordon of Matt Davis Adams Club, uh, who were proposing that Kepa should really be number one ahead of this season, mm. and uh, they were uh, ridiculed uh, somewhat. Uh, but I think... So yeah, okay, of course it was a double save, but I mean, the this, 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 this second save is phenomenal, the way he gets down. And I think if, if you look at Kepa since his return, his technique, um, he's become a lot less loose. Um, I think a lot of times he was let down in previous seasons because he didn't do basics right. 
moving feet, hands in the wrong place. Whereas I think what was remarkable yesterday is how basically he did everything correctly. And also he stopped attracting this bad luck. I mean, he'd considered weird goals. I mean, they basically seemed to have a bad karma about him. Whereas now he's walked into this team, he's keeping clean sheet after clean sheet. And I think yesterday was probably the first time since, I don't know, maybe it also happened a couple of years ago, like on, on occasion, but he really felt part of this team, as Amit alluded to. And he actually, I think it's the first time I can remember that Kepa basically saving Chelsea, uh, which he did in, in the first half. And I think all round, it, it is nice to see because he's um, he was so out of the picture. He was bombed out so badly at one point. He, it felt like, you know, his reputation cannot recover. Whereas now he's in with Porto, obviously, as Amit alluded to, he has seen that this is the high-class goalkeeper that he needs in his team. Because I think for all intents and purposes, Mendy was, I think, a lower division goalkeeper who has massively outperformed what he has. And I think that this, this is the thing he was found out about. But I think if you, if you look also at, the, at this particular game at Villa, like I, was, I wasn't trained with Chelsea fans going up, um, which to, to my surprise, uh, going, up, going up to Birmingham. And, you know, there was still some sort of reticence about, you know, the sacking of Tuchel, um, you know, the, the fact that they kept Gallagher over Gilmore. I mean, they, they were winning games, but I, I don't think the fans seem to be particularly happy about what's going to happen. You know, there's James being out. But performances like this, where they're under the cosh, but without being completely blown away, where one, the goalkeeper contributes to the win, and, you know, the opposition goalkeeper helps them out as well. I think that this is the sort of good away win that kind of comes when you, the team is in a bit of a roll. And th- this is what Chelsea are doing. And I think this, this is another thing. It's weird that it happened on Tuchel as well. Change of manager, the defence gets showed up immediately. It's as if the defenders stop listening to the previous guy um, and then it's someone, someone, you know, to, to give him another kick. I think what's encouraging as well from a Chelsea perspective is that since Graham Potter came in, he's rotated the team a bit. He's changed. He's tried different systems. Some of that has has been forced upon him by injuries. But some of it has just been, you know, having a look at, at the options he has, and they've managed to carry on winning games. Um, you know, you look at the, the way they lined up at Villa Park with a back three with Raheem Sterling in this extremely advanced kind of right wing back come right winger role. Um, and and yet they're you know they're still they're still they're still picking up wins and you know we know that was a big feature of the way that that Graham Potter went about things at Brighton he did like to keep things fresh keep his opponents guessing yes it's early days is there maybe a little bit of new manager bounce possibly but I think you know looking at the way that that he 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 managed things at Brighton there's always a question uh, you know when a, when a manager makes the step up if you like to, to a club uh, of, of sort of Champions League level and it's not something we've seen a huge deal of in, in English football in recent years will they be able to replicate the methods they use will they be able to get their team playing in the same way obviously Chelsea's football is not comparable to Brighton's in terms of its its intricacy and, and, and you know those very well honed well crafted passing circuits and, and, and what have you but you know, given he's only a few weeks in, the fact he's been able to chop and change and move things around and still pick up wins is is pretty promising, I think. Just the proactive, you know, he made the changes at half time. He switched the formation to show up the defense, and you know, it's 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 good to see this pro- very fresh, proactive in-game management as well. Mm. One of the more consistent elements of Potter's side, Mason Mount, who's uh, probably booked himself a place in Chelsea's next game uh, with a brace here. First of all. Taking advantage of Tyrone Mings' a generous header, and then that wonderful free kick. Although people were questioning Emmy Martinez's efforts in, in keeping it out, I mean, it's churlish, surely. Is it? Was it Martinez's fault? Yeah, he was okay. completely down the middle. He should be saving that. All right then. One win in eight Premier League games now for Villa, but a bit more positive. Next up, they'll be facing Fulham. 
at uh, Craven Cottage. Chelsea, midweek, are down the road at Brentford in the big derby. I bet you're going to that, Sash, aren't you? I wish I was. I, I wish someone did better work on my accreditation. I'm gutted that I'm not. Um, because this is this is a good one. And this is also, it's kind of... Who's that? The you idea is, guys. Names. Come on, hang them out to dry. <laughs> no, <laughs> this is your, this is your forum. Hang them out to dry. This is me up in the stakes. This is me complaining in the media about it, about what's right. going on. Um, Do you but, feel betrayed? But I think Sash? it's. It, I feel I feel let down. I feel let down. Mm. <laughs> I feel this. But come on, guys! Can't we all be really, really efficient? And we're not. Um, so mm. unfortunately, it's in front of the telly for me. Um, oh yeah. But uh, again. Uh, Graham Potter, ideas guy going to Brentford, you know, obviously a team with their own identity as well. Brentford, who uh, who were fortunate, I think, somewhat against Brighton. Uh, but let's see um, how Tony does against that uh, Chelsea central defence. Let's see Ooh. whether Kepa can keep his composure. But also, let's see, you know, David Raya, uh, you know, the other goalkeeper I think everyone's keeping their eye on, who's having, again, an excellent season and who's made... Four or five pretty decent saves against Brighton. Who actually, you know, outplayed Brentford. Yet Brentford were clinical when it mattered. Mm. All right. Well, Brentford taking on a Chelsea team that won't feature Rhys James, as we know he's likely to be out, probably miss the World Cup as well. And Golo Kante looks like he's, his uh, absence is going to continue for a long while. Yet they were 2-0 winners on Friday evening, this, over Brighton. Both goals by Ivan Toney. Fact, only Harry Kane and Son Heung-min have scored more Premier League goals in the calendar year than Tony has. It featured another successful penalty. That's now eight of them he's put away out of the last eight. In fact, it's four and a half years or 22 penalty kicks since he failed to convert one. Remarkable. Now, he was explaining his technique afterwards on a, a sports channel and key to it seemed to be the fact that First of all, when the whistle blows for him to take the kick, he stops for a sort of five or six seconds. And then he does this very measured measured approach to the ball, which he says means that the keeper makes the first move and then the keeper decides which way he shoots because he goes for the other. It sounds simple, but de- devastatingly effective. Sasha, as a keeper, your take? Well, I mean, that that's that's what apparently Jorginho was doing. and I think, uh, mm. But I think it's, it's the importance... The important bit is to keep that moment where the keeper does just flinches. And this is why the, he looks at what the goalkeeper does. He isn't looking at the ball, obviously. Then you must make sure that you kick the ball properly. But, you know, he, he does it for a living, so he should be able to do so. But, yeah, I, th- I think it's that moment. So I think with Jorginho, keepers eventually figured out what that moment was, that you have to stay mm. up. And with Tony, not quite. I'm not sure whether he varies it up slightly, so you can't, can't quite read it. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it, it is a known technique. It's just getting his timing right uh, for the keeper to, to make the first move. Does anyone remember a few years ago, Nathan Ellington, uh, the Duke, uh, who was on penalties, I think, for Wigan, he started taking them looking at the goalkeeper and not looking at the ball. Um, Mm. And I think he was pretty successful. And at the time, it was like, this is mad. No one's ever taken penalties like that. Um, and and you know yeah here we are now it's now it's like the way to go. What I like about the the, the Ivan Tony approach is that there are lots of players who now take penalties like that. The the goalkeeper dependent, uh, you know, manner of taking penalties where you eyes on the keeper, you wait for them to move, and then you put it the other way. So a lot of players who do that just roll the ball, but Tony really still kind of like hits it with a lot of force, which is a nice little additional flourish, which I quite appreciate. Mm. 
All I all I know about Ivan Tony is it's got a missed penalty for England in crucial shootout written all over it. You can't have the sort of record he has and weird technique for run-up <laughs> without sending it straight over the bar uh, in the World Cup final, basically. The thing, the thing with Tony is I, I was watching um, bits of that game and thinking to myself... If you are England, he's got second-choice striker who can finish off chances written all over him. You know, you've got your first-choice, really, really good striker, Harry Kane. You've got Ivan Tony as the second-choice who you throw on at 1-0 down with the hope that he can just put one in the back of the net. Um, but I don't I don't know if Southgate's going to use him. It didn't, it didn't feel like that in the last international break, did it? He may have run out of other options by then, the way things are going. But um, Brighton, one point from a possible nine so far for Roberto De Zerbi. They have had 35 shots across those two. This one with Brentford and Spurs before. Solly March, if you're keeping track of this, is currently the player with the most shots without scoring this season. 21 he's had. He hasn't scored a Premier League goal for over two years. I'm not sure I've ever seen Solly March score a goal. I mean, he must have done it some It seems like one of those players who just never scores, like gets mm. lots of chances, but just doesn't quite hit the ball hard enough. Mm. Well, maybe that'll all change on Tuesday when Brighton face Forest at the Amex. Who knows? Next up, we'll be having a chat about more of the weekend action, more of the exciting fixtures in prospect, and also on this day. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. This midweek, apart from the Premier League, you've also got uh, Women's Champions League, Leon taking on Arsenal. And PSG against Chelsea, to the uh, more eye-catching fixtures there. There's that held-over Europa League game between Arsenal and PSV, which The Athletic are doing a live blog on. Is that right, Amitai? Yeah, we, we run live. One of the things that my job involves is um, helping run the live blog. So we've got that and uh, Manchester United against Tottenham. Um, mm. It's worth checking out. It's a really good second screen experience. We've got loads oh, of stats nice. and good analysis and good commentary from uh, our resident live blogger. Hey, it's the 17th of October. And on this day in 2009, this. Support from Andy Reid. He's done well. Threatening here from Sunderland. He'll fall for Bent. That's right, the most famous, arguably, of Darren Bent's 106 Premier League goals. Sunderland against Liverpool at the Stadium of Light. The game nil-nil when Bent's shot is deflected past Pepe Reina because it hits a large beach ball. Reina, with the two objects moving in different directions, decides to try and save the beach ball. Catastrophic error. Sasha, you remember this, I bet. I do, yeah. Well, you tried to save the bigger thing moving towards your goal. I think right. it's only a natural I mean, it's unfortunate. He's just, it's big and it's orange. And of course, his attention is distracted by that. While the, you know, the little white ball sails happily in and Sunderland win 1-0. The, the goal was allowed to stand, which I still struggle with. I guess with VAR, there's no question that that would be, that would be corrected. I think given how that season panned out for Liverpool, Liverpool just should have just taken their ball and gone home at that stage. It was, it was disastrous mm. season last season under 
Benitez uh, finished low down the table. And yeah, that, that whole season was very, very disappointing. And actually, mm-hmm. Pepe Reina's form eventually nosedived as well. I'm not sure because of the beach ball or because he lost interest, but certainly around that time. I remember the weirdest part of the narrative around that, and admittedly I was quite young at this point, so I might be misremembering, but I feel like Rainer got blamed quite badly. It, there was this thing of like... the ball weird, should, yeah. The, yeah, the, the goal, there was this sort of double narrative, which was like the goal shouldn't have been allowed because there's a beach ball on the pitch, but Rainer should have still saved it. And it was just like the most remarkably weird thing. Of course, as, as Sasha said, you're going to go after the beach ball rather than the tiny white ball. I feel like maybe you shouldn't. The beach ball had been on the field for a while, though, and that referee Mike Jones was actually demoted after this because he should have, you know, seen to it. But I think it had been there for a bit, hadn't it? Yeah, it got thrown out from just... the way end. Yeah, um, right. It, it, it wasn't. Yeah, it, it didn't just get thrown out and hit the ball. I think someone should have flagged for it. Linesman should have noticed. Someone should have done something for God's sake. Right. Okay. It's like when you get a plastic bag on the pitch and there's a plastic bag just sort of <laughs> drifting across the, and you're wondering whether it's going to interfere with play at some point. Mm-hmm. And a dog running after it. One of, what, yeah, one of my favourite kind of very low-key uh, random football thrills. Right, nice. That beach ball, Tom, is now in the National Football Museum in Manchester. Which is a tremendous institution and well yes. worth a visit. Very good. OK, other weekend games that have just taken place in the Premier League include uh, Fulham's 2-2 draw with Bournemouth. Bournemouth now unbeaten in six matches under Gary O'Neill. Leicester's 0-0 draw with Crystal Palace. And Wolves' 1-0 victory over Nottingham Forest. 2-0 if you count the social media. Bottom three now reads Wolves one point clear in 17th place. Uh, Saints in 18th, a point behind them. And then four points from safety, Leicester and Forrest. I mentioned that social media thing. Forrest's uh, social media team feeling pretty confident for a, a side that have only won one in nine, laying down the gauntlet early doors on Saturday with a picture of Emmanuel Dennis uh, cuddling some wolf cubs at Molyneux and a caption playtime. And Wolves then, after the game, responded with their own one with a, a tree stump freshly chopped tree stump and a caption playtime's over and a bit of a a bit of a dig a bit of shade as well on a on a hoarding very subtly put in at the back calling them knots forest are you here for this or is this club account bants and therefore the game's gone and that i just really want to know who approved it or who came up with it in the first place because if you're one of Nottingham Forest's well-paid Premier League footballers, you come away from that game being like, sorry, what? The Twitter account put what out? And this is, this is the problem with it, I think. And it, it's that, you know, the, the pe- and not to denigrate the work of, of you know, hard-working uh, social media managers, but, you know, they, in, in the kind of hierarchical structure of football clubs, they're inevitably quite low down the chain, but also they're given a certain degree of leeway to be playful and, and provocative and, and you know a lot of the time the stuff they put out there doesn't attract any attention but at the same time they are often one of the most visible you know presences in in a football club's entire you know kind of management structure if you like and it's the sort of thing that you know if if that result is then followed up by a Nottingham Forest win then everyone pats themselves on the back but when it goes badly it ends up mm. creating newspaper headlines and being mentioned in press conferences and yeah I'm not I'm not sure how you sort of sustain that level of like playfulness and, and light provocation without occasionally finding yourself in in positions like this unless you just decide not to go in for it at all well, yeah and, and maybe when you are one win in nine you you decide to not tempt fate in that fashion but 
It was a. They'll bring in a new social media manager. This is they're probably on their seventeenth one already this season. So I'm sure there'll be a new one in the door soon enough. What about Wolves, uh, who got the win? They've only had four goals this season. They've only had two wins in their last seventeen matches. Ruben Neves uh, with the penalty to give Wolves the lead. Uh, Forest not able to convert theirs, uh, thanks to Wolves keeper Jose Saar, who subsequently revealed that he's been playing with a broken wrist for the last two months. Sasha? Yeah, it's, I'm, 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 imagine the painkillers for, for that. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, Jose Saar is um, quite like him. Uh, he's got quite like extra, slightly extravagant technique. Um, the odd dodgy game, um, where he just comes for everything and misses everything. But I think for a club like Wolves... Um, and Forest, you need your keepers to do very well, given that they they're struggling to score, and the rest of the team is basically struggling. Um, so I think yeah, he stepped up, stepped up for them in this situation. I think Henderson. I mean, Henderson have saved has saved two of the previous penalties that he say, he faced um, uh, not on the day, but I think overall um, the game was such a painful watch. I mean, mm. Diego Costa up front for 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 Wolves, you know, looks like a man who's semi-retired. Uh, Adama Traore, he seems to. He, he did one thing to win the penalty when he cut inside, but the rest of the time he doesn't seem to be able to run into any sort of space anymore because there isn't any. Um, so I'll be interested to see what the new Wolves manager can do with that team. As with Forrest, you know, they still look like a team of 22 players but brought it in the summer. Um, right. So it, it's, 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 it's quite hard to see how these teams would not go on struggling for the rest of the season the way they looked on Saturday. Is Nuno going back there? What's the what's the word on on the Wolves? I mean, if Nuno situation? goes back there, what beautiful football they're going to play after that? I mean, I know he, you know, he's he was a man of the people. They loved him there, but I do think that as a manager, he certainly has a ceiling, um, and that ceiling was the previous Wolves team. So going back to him, like I don't see how this team will suddenly start scoring two a game. Uh, yes, I mean there, there there are problems with the fact that there is no strikers and stuff, but in terms of conceptually approaching football structure you know his football mentality like I don't see Wolves turning into free-flowing team under Nuno mm. but even when they first came up and everyone was sort of hailing yeah. them um, they, were they, like they were playing they were playing really yeah. boring really functional yeah. football that is kind of the, the Wolves style and I guess they you know they decided to move on from the Nuno era in the hope of um, you know bringing more spectacular football to Molyneux and it hasn't worked out um, and now they're kind of back where they started but I, I feel in the short term at least and given their perilous position in the table they'd probably take a bit more stodgy um, but winning football and if you look at their recent results I mean the recent defeats they lost two one-sided games against City and against Chelsea which are games you probably expect them to lose but apart from that they won 1-0 at home to Southampton they won 1-0 at home to Forest at the weekend um, albeit, you know, needing some heroics from, from Jose Sarr, as, as Sasha was mentioning. But I feel like that is the Wolves' playbook. That is what they're good at, grinding out games without scoring many goals, not letting, you know, not letting any in. Um, and it, it probably isn't particularly exciting as, as a prospect. Um, but if that's what it takes to, to get them up the table, then I, I expect most Wolves fans will probably take that. Is the Nuno ceiling that bad? Because they got into Europe. Like, that's fine for Wolves, right? Mm. They, they did have a functioning striker at the time. It, yeah, and as well, and there's also like they come up and they play in a certain style, and after a while, you know, it's it's quite he hasn't changed. And I think mm. with, with 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 where he is at, with Wolves are at, they wanted this change. Yeah. Then why sack well. the previous manager Bruno Lage? Because yes, with them, okay, he hasn't he hasn't implemented a new style of football that he promised them. So let's bring a guy who will definitely not implement a new style of football. <laughs> it's just it's yeah, wow. it's it's puzzling. All right then. Leicester nil-nil with Crystal Palace. James Madison booked for diving right at the end of that game. 
He'll be suspended for Leicester's clash with Leeds at the King Power. Sasha, what? Can I can I just say something? What's happened yeah. to Palace? They can't play football yeah. anymore. They played against a team that can't defend. Right. And they got swamped in midfield. They were, I thought Leicester looked pretty good. They were proactive. Uh, they swarmed Palace on occasions. Palace, given the players that they have, you know, Eze Zaha and Olise, uh, they are suddenly unable to play football. They previous away game, I think it was at Newcastle, was mentioned, was a nil-nil as well. They go to these away games, and I, I don't know what happened in the summer because, like last season, what was so interesting about Palace was that they would change within the game, they would take the game to the opposition, and this season, it, it's there seems to be some sort of a regression in the Vieira. They're missing Conor Gallagher. That's what it is. Fulham, meantime, a 2-2 draw for them with Bournemouth. Bournemouth, you recall, lost 9-0 to Liverpool. Since that day, only one team has been unbeaten in the Premier League. Of course it's Bournemouth. Of course, six matches under Gary O'Neill, they've not been defeated once. Will Bill Foley give him the job? Will he? Should he? Oh, he has to, surely. Does he? Yeah, I think. OK, all right. That settled that debate. Sasha? I, th- I think this is definitely the best till last. I love this game. Um, All right. I think one of the reasons I like actually looking at Fulham this season is because I think the good players are really obvious and the bad players are really obvious. Uh, so for this game, I like the fact that Marco Silva, after you know that, that absolute disaster at West Ham in terms of refereeing and also in terms of performance, they gave up a very high XG. Uh, so Toshin's finally been dropped. So Reem and Diop, what happens in the first minute? Reem gets dragged out of position, doesn't follow his player, and Solanke uh, has pretty easy finish. Behind them, you had Leno, who again made a couple of absolutely super saves. I mean, the man's technique is outrageous. <laughs> and then up front, uh, you have uh, you have the Smitrovic dude, who basically, the second, the penalty, he was, I love the fact that it was all Mitrovic's creation. Because he draws the first foul, which leads to the free kick. He drags down Lerma. Again, he gets into Lerma's face, and Lerma isn't doing anything. He literally drops him to the ground, wins the pen, converts the pen. It's like this all his handiwork all over the pitch. And on the other side, you see, obviously, the recovery in form uh, for Bournemouth. Again, shows what a bang average manager Scott Parker was. If he just concentrated on, on actually coaching the team, they actually seem to be pretty capable of doing pretty well in this division. And I think, again, these two teams that have come up um, definitely worth watching. And I, I, like every weekend, I sort of keep an eye out for whoever they're playing and try to sort of get across it because I think particularly Fulham, for me, are mm. really, really interesting and fun team to watch. All right. This was a Saturday 3 o'clock game. And as such, Sasha, I'm not entirely sure how you watched it unless you were there at Craven Cottage. Sasha's gone very... We just lost connection <laughs> to Sasha for a second. And as I just on that note, you were writing this week about the fact that in the next kind of rights offer, or however that should be described, the next you know initiation of the bidding process for a fat set of Premier League rights, the three o'clock kickoffs have been mentioned as being part of the package for domestic rights holders. Is that right? Are so we about to see a change? So it's the yeah, it's the EFL next set of rights. Oh, and it's they, only the football uh, league. Well, so what's interesting about it is. Um, we heard, um, well, our understanding is that the Premier League are committed to the 3pm blackout until, and, and this is the key thing, until the end of this current rights package, which ends right. a year after the EFL's one does. Um, it's, it's, so it, when is that? That would be 2025. 
Um, so we've got two more seasons in this current regime, is that right, yeah. after this one so, in yeah. the Premier League? So, that, so that's the situation as it stands. And the EFL, the, again, they haven't said they are definitely going to move to lift the blackout, but they're willing to listen to offers from broadcast partners who would want that to happen. Um, and it's quite interesting because essentially it's a self-imposed rule, the 3pm blackout. It's it's a UEFA article covers it and England, Scotland, and I think it's Montenegro is the only three countries that have it still. And the EFL have probably done the maths on this because they have seen the value of streaming because they broadcast, all of their games are broadcast now overseas. And they've done the research and I, I think it was like well into the 90s, maybe even 99% of fans who they surveyed said they'd be willing to pay for a home and away season ticket to be able to stream their club so i think it's i think we're getting to the state and and, and you only have to look at the deal between apple and mls in their latest round of rights to see that basically the money is probably there if the efl want to take it maybe at the sacrifice of a few couple of hundred fans every week but actually the the financial value of it could be so significant so i think i think we are on the cusp of this sort of semi-revolution in broadcasting in the UK that I think we've been waiting for almost it's it feels it's like it feels a bit late relative to other um forms of content but I think we're just about there and I think I think the next two rights packages for the two main divisions in this country are going to be very very interesting and certainly if 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 EFL decides to break the blackout then it'd be pretty easy to imagine even within the terms of an existing deal the Premier League going well if there's not a blackout who wants a three o'clock kickoff? Very good. That's pretty much it for today. But we did mention Le Classique, PSG Marseille, right at the very top. Tom, you went along. It was extraordinary atmosphere at the Parc de Bronze. Fireworks all over. It was absolutely rocking. Yeah, it was a fantastic game. You know, pretty close. You know, PSG Marseille games have been very one-sided um, in 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 recent years. But Marseille are going well under under Igor Tudor and. Neymar got the only goal in first half stoppage time, and I think PSG were were, were probably worthy winners in the game. Uh, but a really entertaining fixture. I think there was something like forty-one shots um, from both sides across the game, which is which is obviously quite a quite a high number, um, and a tremendous atmosphere, a really good atmosphere. With the one caveat that there were no Marseille fans there as there never are for big uh, French matches, and this has been the case in Ligue 1 for for years now. Um, and I've I've written. You know, I've I've written about this for the Athletic. The the kind of default approach for the French authorities for any remotely sensitive fixture is just to ban the away fans. Is to say, oh, it's too sensitive. It's it's too tricky. We just won't let them in. You know, if you have clubs where the fan base is is really kind of engaged and, and they really want to put a show on, like you know, is often the case at the Parc des Princes when they're not on strike, the PSG ultras, then you sometimes get a great atmosphere. But when you've only got one set of fans there, it does feel a little bit does feel a little bit hollow. All right. Well, Olympic Marseille looking good, but beaten by PSG. Marseille very much uh, Spurs rivals for qualifying from their Champions League group, of course. We'll, we'll discuss more about that game in Tuesday's Totally Football Show, in which Jules and James and Rafa and Alvaro will be rounding up all the big stories from around the weekend in Europe, including that aforementioned... PSG Marseille game and Mbappé uh, a correction of course afterwards and loads of other top stuff as well uh, Le Classique uh, as I say but also El Clásico in Spain huge uh, we'll be back as well on Thursday uh, reviewing the midweek Premier League action for now 
It's many, many thanks to Tom, to Amitai, to Sasha, producer Charlie, and you listener. I do hope you'll be catching up with us soon. For now, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Athletic.